family. Good morning. Hey, as we gather and worship, I know we have many joining us online as we do each week and those catching this after the fact online. But why don't we turn to page 169 in your pew Bibles. If you have that in front of you or if you're in the front row, it's that red book. It's our pew Bible. It's the new revised standard version if you've brought your own or if you are going to log in on your mobile device and join us here. This is in Joshua chapter 1. And as we set the stage for this moment in Scripture, phenomenal moment, I'm going to read for us in a moment Joshua 1, verses 7 through 11. But before I do that, let me say this. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, you've heard me say that next year is our 60-year anniversary as a church. It's our diamond year, which is tremendous when you think about all that God has done on this campus, on this hill, in this city, around the country and around the world, all that God has done in and through us. And so we, in this season, as we give thanks for what God has done, absolutely blown away in the miraculous ways that He's moved as we've stepped out in faith and obedience, we're at a moment in time where we have to say, again, Jesus, where are you leading us? And so I want to have you set your calendars. Some of you have already heard this. You're already doing it. You're already talking to me about your excitement. But starting on October 4th, so just two weeks from now, we're going to start a vision series. So we're going to kick that off those seven weeks with a one-service Sunday. As one church, we're going to gather together as we hear this one vision that I believe God is laying upon all of us as we faithfully follow Him. And I'm asking you to commit to every single one of those seven weeks. And as you hear where we're headed as a church and how every single one of us has a critical role to play in that and how this is actually just a way of life. I'm asking you to commit to all of those seven. Some of you might travel. You'll catch it online. You can know you can go to our website or download the podcast on iTunes, but don't let this season go by without you praying, God, how are you leading me? How are you leading us as a family of faith? And so what we're doing this month in September is we're going through four different stories, true stories, biblical blockbusters that remind us of this amazing, epic God that we serve. Scripture isn't separate from us in the sense that it's about other people. No, this is, this is our story. As part of God's people, we worship the same God, a God who moves mountains, who multiplies bread and loaves and fish who meets us in the midst of our furnace experiences, who even tears down walls in ways that we think are absolutely impossible to get through. So, as I read this, the context for this moment in the story of God's people is this, that they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. Some of you know the story. You know that God, through the leadership of Moses, leads them out of Egypt. They wander in the desert for 40 years. They were unfaithful. They were disobedient to God. God causes them to spiritually wander, to physically get lost in the wilderness. A whole generation dies off. Moses dies. And now Joshua, now at the age of roughly 80, is now the commander of Israel, the leader of the people, on the cusp of entering into the promised land that God had promised so many years ago. And on the cusp of that moment, kind of like us, on the cusp of this moment, expectantly waiting for what God has in store for us in the future. God says this to the nation of Israel and us today. Hear these words. This is Joshua 1, verses 7 through 11. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful 
to act in accordance with all the law that my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you may be successful wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you shall make your ways prosperous, and then you shall be successful. I hereby command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for in three days you were to cross over the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. This, my friends, is God's word. So if you know the story, you know what happens next. There's some amazing things that God does, not just through Joshua, but through a whole ensemble cast of people. As they go through this amazing journey, they experience things that, as you read it, you might say, what? That, frankly, that's a little odd. That's a little quirky. And as this ensemble cast goes to the point where they experience the walls of Jericho falling down, ironically led by a group of trumpeteers and musicians, so powerful as music. But still, in the midst of all this, you might say, that's odd, that's a little quirky. And you know, we've been in this series taking a step back and saying, you know, these stories are so epic, so big that Hollywood, of course, you know, they, they have their take on them. In the first week, we took a look at, you know, imagine if like a Michael Bay character, a director, took a look at a story of Jesus multiplying the loaves. But what if there was like last week a film noir approach to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? And this week, what if, you know, what if like Wes Anderson took a look at this story. What would he do? You know, he's, he's a master of the ensemble cast when you look at the films that he's a, But he's so quirky, so odd. He kind of picks these things in his stories that you're like, that's... And those who love Wes Anderson absolutely love Wes Anderson. But what if... What if Wes Anderson or somebody like him took a stab at this story, The Walls of Jericho? What would he do? Well, the Bel Air Drama Department helps us out as they always do. Let's take a look. Joshua. Go take possession of the land, Yahweh. If you're kind to my family, 
I'll help you escape. We should attack with swords! With a battering ram. With a catapult. What they said! Really? Horns. We need horns. No. No. That's not even a horn. I don't even know where to begin. You. And you. Dear Ray, we are coming. Joshua. Dear Joshua, how long? Rahab. Dear Rahab, seven days. Seven days? Seven days? Seven days. Dear Rahab, now. Now? Now. You might want to step back a few feet. Now, now I know some of you, you know, who love Wes Anderson films, you're like, I love it, I love it, little Royal Tenenbaums, little Moonrise Kingdom, it's fantastic, I, I saw that, I saw that. And for those of you who have no idea who Wes Anderson is, you're like, what was that? <laughs> Perfect. Because there's a lot of things in this story that if you're human, you'll say, what was that? How odd is this story? How quirky is this true story? And how imperative it is for us. As we, like the nation of Israel, are being led by God into a place that we have no idea how to lead ourselves into, as we face obstacles that we'll see in a society that we have no idea how we're going to be able to do this, that we worship a God who breaks down walls. But there's some key things along the way that we have to, to take notice of. We can't overlook. So, if you know this story again, you'll notice what happens after this. After the 40 years again, God calls Joshua to finally lead the nation of Israel into this place. And as they do so, he sends out two spies. And that's in Joshua chapter 2. You can read it later. But basically, as those two spies go into Jericho to scout out the land, there's a woman by the name of Rahab. So significant is she that she has been included, not only in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, but she's also mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, in what's often called the, the Hall of Faith, alongside people like David and Abraham and Moses. And she was a prostitute by trade. And God used her in tremendous ways because she stepped out in obedience and helped those spies in that place, giving worship to God. And I want you to know this, just as an aside, that no matter what you've done in life, no matter what you did last night or this morning, no matter whose bed you woke up in, 
no matter what things that you've experienced in life that you think disqualify you from being used by God. You can take a look at somebody like a Rahab. And all it is is just one moment of faith and obedience saying, God, use me. And in that moment, God uses you far beyond you could ever imagine. And so that gives me hope. That gives us hope, I believe. But as that story goes on, there gets to be this moment where they reach the edge of the Jordan River. And it says very clearly in Scripture that it's at flood stage. This isn't when, you know, a California river is just, you know, just a nice, you know, leftover of what used to be a river. This is at flood season, the most dangerous time of the year to cross the river. And God says, I want you to take the priest, hold on to the Ark of the Covenant, which had the Ten Commandments and other things, and I want you to walk faithfully across the Jordan. And I imagine that they've heard stories of how 40 years ago, God used Moses to massively part the Red Sea so that they could walk through by faith. But this time it was different. God didn't part the seas and then they walked through as it was in the Red Sea. This time at the Jordan, they literally have to put their feet into the rushing river. They have to step out in faith. They have to be absolutely courageous when everything around them says, don't do this, it's absolutely dangerous, don't step out in faith, yet they do. And in that moment, because of their faith, because of their courage, the water stops, it begins to build up. What a great reminder for us as we step into this new season together. There's going to be things around us, rising currents in the world around us, absolute forces that will tell us, don't step out in faith, don't follow Jesus, don't be bold and courageous in being an ambassador for Him. Just step back, stay back. But like the nation of Israel, if we step out in faith, watch what God will do. But even more than that, as they walk through, as the whole nation of Israel walks through the Jordan, it's dry ground. As they go through, Joshua says, I want you to grab 12 different stones, stones that represent each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So that it would be a reminder so that your kids and your grandkids and everybody else would, when they see those stones, ask, why was this? And you would be able to point to God's faithfulness. And they set up that altar, those stones of remembrance. And how important it is for us today, in the same way, to pause and to look back and to see how faithful God has been through faithful people through the last 60 years of the life of this church. But then it goes on, and as you know the story, there's those seven days where they march around and just what seems to be just what an odd thing. I mean, there's no battering rams. There's no weapons of mass destruction in that era. And what they do is they're, they're obedient to God. And they simply walk around following God's leading, God's command. And as a result of that, how odd it is. How cool, it's such a Wes Anderson style moment. Those walls come crashing down. And it's the first wall to drop among many physical walls on their way into the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. Yet there's three verses in the midst of this story that we have to focus on. Three verses that often go overlooked. Frankly, three verses that I had overlooked for so many years. And unless we understand these three verses that are found in Joshua chapter 5, this story will mean something completely different than what it should mean. Because without these three verses, it's just a story of imperialistic conquest. It's no different than the Crusades, no different than human-led conquest, but it's three, these three verses that change everything. And I'm preparing you, Belair, because starting on October 4th, you're going to hear what I believe God is leading us to do. 
and it is so big and it's so massive, you're going to say, impossible, impossible, that's not going to happen. Those walls, impossible, it's impossible to be able to get through those things. And that is true unless we understand these three verses. These three verses change everything. Let's take a look. So open up those Bibles again. If you close them up, open them back up. It's Joshua 5. I'm going to read this starting in verse 13. Joshua 5, 13. Once when Joshua was by Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you one of us or one of our adversaries? He replied, Neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And he said to him, What do you command your servant, my Lord? The commander of the army of the Lord said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, what is going on here? We have to understand these three verses. This is absolutely applicable for us today in 2015 as we choose to faithfully follow Jesus. Joshua at this point, we believe he's roughly 80 years old. Now he and Caleb, a little background of the story, 40 years prior, Moses, follow me here, sent 12 spies into Jericho. And says, I want you to scout out the land. This land that God has promised us to take, to live in, to dwell with him, to live with him as king. And so as the 12 spies went in, only Joshua and only Caleb said, we can do this. Our God is for us. Who can be against us? Yet the 10 other spies came back and they gave a false report. They said, the land there, it's like giants. We can't do this. They were absolutely fearful. And so God looks out upon his people and says, because of your disobedience, because you don't trust me, because you don't believe that I can fulfill my promises, you're going to have to wander in the desert for 40 years. All the people are going to die off. That generation is going to die off except for Joshua and Caleb because they were faithful, because they were obedient. What was Joshua thinking, I imagine? Now, 40 years later, perhaps at the age of 80, now the commander of Israel. Everybody's looking to him. Everybody's looking to him for vision. Everybody's looking to him for leadership. Everybody's looking to him for courage. He's fallen in the footsteps of Moses. And as he approaches that same city, he sees a man with a sword drawn. And he goes up and he says, and I love that. It, it's so soft here in the English. But in the Hebrew, it literally means he rushes up to him. It's like he's going toe-to-toe. -to -toe. He's 80 years old. He has the courage. There's this armed man to the teeth. He's armed to the teeth. And he is the commander of the nation of Israel. He goes up to this armed foe, perhaps, or ally, and says, are you for me or against me? And this man says, Neither. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and I have now come. Now, what is, who is this? Well, I'm going to say right from the get-go, this is Jesus. Now, so often in my sermons, you know, I'll walk through, and at the very end, kind of the big reveal is, 
And it's Jesus in the furnace. It's Jesus on the throne that Isaiah sees. So I'm not going to wait till the I'm going to tell you right now, this is Jesus. And you might say, why? No, why doesn't it say Jesus? This is the commander of the army of the Lord. Why do you say that it's Jesus? Follow me here. Now, only in Scripture does it tell us that we should worship our Creator. And if we worship anything other than our Creator, basically any created thing, it's called idolatry. And so this, this man with a drawn sword, who is speaking on behalf of the Lord, not only allows himself to be worshipped, he pushes it even further and he says this, okay, Joshua, I want you to take off your shoes because this ground is holy. Where have you heard that before? If you know, in Exodus chapter 3, there's this moment where Moses hears a voice out of a burning bush. And in Scripture it says, and the angel of the Lord, not an angel or one of the angels, the angel of the Lord speaks and says, you're on holy ground, Moses. Take off your sandals. It says in Scripture that the angel of the Lord appears to Samson's parents and says that your son, he's going to be a hero, he's going to be a great leader. And literally the angel of the Lord is in and goes into the fire of the sacrifice that goes up to heaven. In Malachi it says that there's going to be a messenger that's going to come and it's going to prepare the way for the angel of the Lord. And in Matthew 11, Jesus says, yes, that John the Baptist, he was the messenger that has come to prepare the way for me. And you might be thinking, wait, hold on a second. I know that Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. I know a little bit about, you know, time. And this moment in Joshua is before Jesus is born. Yes, but it's still Jesus. How could that be? You see, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit have existed in this community of oneness for all of eternity. God the Father wasn't created. God the Son wasn't created. God the Spirit wasn't created. They've always existed. And the Word of God, the angel of the Lord, Jesus from Nazareth, are all one and the same person. A unique person in the triune Godhead. If you want to talk about the Trinity afterwards, come talk to me afterwards. But there's this amazing truth that before Jesus walks on this earth as a man from Nazareth, born of a virgin, under the law, who lived a perfect, sinless life on the way to going to the cross, dying for you and for me, he appeared and does what the Son of God does best, communicates to us on behalf of God, relates to us on behalf of God, is not only from God but also is God. And so here it is, Jesus, before he is even born, is a preeminent preliminary vision of Christ and he shows up and he hears the question that Joshua says are you for me or are you against me and he says neither it's the wrong question and the truth is, is that every single one of us, when we first come to God, when we first come to church, when we first approach anything related to some being that's bigger than us we always ask that same question just like Joshua and we say, okay, are you for me or are you against me? God, I've got this big merger coming up in the fourth quarter. It's going to be massive. God, are you for me or are you against me? I see these promises, God, that you tell me about and this peace and this joy, but I haven't experienced them. God, are you for me or are you against me? 
I'm trying to find a spouse, and God, I'm, I'm, I'm here. God, are you for me or are you against me? I'm still unemployed. The list goes on and on. We can say all these things, but what we do is we bring our agenda as the commander of our own lives, and we say, God, are you for me or are you against me? As the commander of the nation of Israel, Joshua goes up to this being who he doesn't yet know who it is and basically says, are you for me or against me? Because if you're for me, then get in line. I'm the leader. Follow me. If you're against me, it's on. But the moment that he asks that question, Jesus responds and says, neither. It's the wrong question. The question really is, are you Joshua? Are you Drew? Are you Belair for me or against me? And the moment that Joshua realizes who this being is, it says that he falls and he hits the dirt, hits the earth in worship, and basically says, Command me. The commander of the nation of Israel realized that he had to enlist in the commander-in-chief's army, the commander of all creation, Jesus Christ. And it's not until that moment that your life can begin to change. It's not until that moment that the walls can come down in your life. It's not until that moment where you finally say, okay, I'm going to stop asking God, are you for me or against me? But I'm going to hit the ground and worship and say, Jesus, command me. It's not until that moment that God's Spirit dwells in you. In that moment, you become a Christian. In that moment, you are adopted into God's family. But as long as you're saying, God, are you for me or are you against me? You're divided in your heart. And because of that, when we say, God, are you for me or are you against me? We pick and choose the things that we love about God. We love his love. We love his mercy. We love his grace. We love his forgiveness. We love all those verses that are about that. But then when it comes to verses about justice and holiness, we say, oh, I don't want any of that. Yet God comes in the fullness of who he is. And God is a holy God who can't even be in the presence of brokenness, can't even be in the presence of sin, is incomparable, is unmatchable, and can't even be in the presence of that. And many of us, if we say, God, uh, are you for me or against me? Often we don't like the holiness of God part. We don't like how he can lead us. We don't like how he can change the things or even demand of us to change the broken parts of ourselves. Let me, let me put it this way. You all know that my name is Drew Sams. You know that, right? Some of you are new. Okay, my name is Drew Sams. Nice to meet you. First name, last name. And by the way, yes, it sounds like I have two first names, but Sams is spelled S-A-M-S. Some of you put S-A-M apostrophe S, like, like it's possessive or something. So that's just my last name. Okay, so Drew Sams. Now imagine if you invited me over for dinner. And, but, but what if you invited me this way? What if you said, hey, Drew is welcome to come into my house, but keep Sam's at home. Yeah, Drew is welcome to come, but no, nah, I don't want Sam's to show up. I would have no idea what to do with that. Because I'm neither Drew nor Sam's, I'm Drew Sam's. And if you want me to come over, you've got to invite all of me. I, I wouldn't even know how to separate Drew from Sam's or Sam's from Drew. It's just impossible. It's crazy for you to invite only part of me. It's exactly true in this, that it's impossible for you to say, God, I only want your love in my life, but not your holiness. I want your forgiveness, but I don't want you to change me. Are you for me or are you against me? And Jesus says, neither. 
the only proper response is for us to say, command me. But here's the amazing thing. Never once do we see Jesus force the issue. Never once do we see Jesus pull rank. A couple months ago, I read about Colin Powell. He was a four-star general in the U.S. Army. Some of you perhaps know this, have heard this. Whether it's true or not, he claims that during his tenure as a four-star general, as he gave commands to those under his leadership, he said that not once did he have to pull rank. Never once did he have to say, now that's an order. Because, he says, that he lived in such a way, he served in such a way, he led in a way that was filled with integrity, so that when he gave an order, people respected him enough to follow the order. Now, whether that's true or not, that's a four-star general of the U.S. Army. Imagine our true general, our true commander-in-chief, who is perfect, who is without mistake, who commands us in our life, who we were actually created to follow. We were actually created to follow him, to allow him to be our commander-in-chief. But not once does he say, because I said so. Not once does God say after he commands us to do something, now that's an order. And some of you, you've got that baggage because you've heard that somewhere and that's absolutely not true. It's not at all what scripture says. You see, there's this amazing moment in Philippians chapter 2. It's one of the first hymns, the, one of the first worship songs of the first century church where Paul writes with church in Philippi, he says this, that Jesus, though he was the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. As the great commander-in-chief, as the general, as the commander of the army of the Lord, it's as if he took off all of his medallions, all of his ranking, and entered into and became one of us. Was born as a child, served, even went to the point of death. Now, I find it so fascinating that in this description in Joshua 5. Open those Bibles back up. In verse 13, it says this. Page 171. Once when Joshua was by Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Now, what's that all about? I'm sure many of us don't like to picture Jesus with a sword in his hand. What's, what's that all about? Well, let me go into more detail. Turn to Revelation 19. See, if you go to Will Bredberg's Genesis to Revelation class after this, he's going to cover a lot of this, but I know some of us, we have a hard time with picturing Jesus with a sword. Well, get ready for this. I'm going to read Revelation 19, verse 11. It's on page 1006. This is John having a vision of Jesus, and he says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but he himself. Ready for this? He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What on earth? Do you ever picture Jesus with what seems to be a tattoo up his leg, with a robe dipped in blood, with a sword? This is intense. This is heavy. 
Because it's absolutely true that God is a holy God. He can't be in the presence of sin. He can't be in the presence of brokenness. Every time we choose ourselves, when we say, I'm the commander of my life, that is sin. And as Martin Luther said that sin is this, it's humanity curved inward on itself. You were created to fly like an airplane. Yet you've lived your existence thinking that you're a boat and you're sinking. And how hard is it to tell a plane created to fly that's been a boat all its life trying to tread water, you were meant to fly. They can't even picture that. that can't even, what, what does it mean to fly? I'm just trying to tread water. Well, Jesus created you to worship him, to allow him to command you. And you might say, what? Uh, th uh, that doesn't make sense. That's what you were created for. The reason why you're drowning is because you're trying to be your own commander. If you truly want to fly, if you truly want to experience all the blessings and the promises that God has for you, you have to hit the ground and worship and say, Jesus, command me. Before the walls that are impossible fall down in front of you, the walls of your heart have to absolutely drop, like Joshua. But you might say, okay, this is intense, this is heavy, or is this like a violent God that I have to somehow avoid? No. Why is it that Joshua could fall and worship God as God the Son with a sword drawn and not be slain in two? Because Scripture says that every single human being falls short of the glory of God. Every single person is due the sword. So how is it that Joshua can be safe in front of the sword? Well, it's because there's another picture of Jesus that is equally as true as a writer called Faithful and True with a sword. It's the picture of a lamb that was slain. You see, in Revelation 5, it also says that I saw this, this lamb that was slain, and it was Jesus. You see, the truth is that though God's wrathful sword was drawn, and though that wrathful sword wants to go at war with the addictions in your life, wants to go at war with the selfishness in your life, wants to go at war with the greed and the pride and all the things that separate you from God and His holiness and His perfection, He never goes at war with you. Because why? Because Jesus is the commander of the Lord's army with that sword, allowed that sword to be turned on Himself when He went to the cross. In Genesis chapter 15, whoa, whiplash. This went from Revelation to Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham and says this, As I covenant with you, Abraham, I will be faithful to you. I will never let you down. I will never abandon you. And if I do, may I be cut in two, which is common for covenants back then. And the normal thing that would happen after that would be this, that, that if you, Abraham, if you don't live up to your end of the bargain, if you, humanity, don't live up to the end of the bargain, if you who are here listening right now, if you don't live up to the standard that I've called you to do, may you be cut in two. But Jesus does not say that. God does not say that. God the Spirit does not say that. God says, Abraham, if you don't live up to your end of the bargain, if you don't fulfill your side of the agreement, may I be cut in two. How does that work? You see, God doesn't put away the sword and say, oh yeah, the brokenness, it's okay. I'll just turn a blind eye. No, he pulls out the sword. But when Jesus goes to the cross, he takes the fullness of the wrath and the penalty that is due us. So that when we lift up empty hands of faith, when we receive what Jesus has done for us, 
We don't die by the sword. We are now dead to sin. And we receive all the things that has been given to Jesus. We are adopted into God's family. All the things that are true of Jesus, his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness. He lived a perfect sinless life are now given to us. So when you hear verses where God says, be holy as I am holy, it's not about you trying to measure up. It's not about you trying to be perfect. It's not about you trying to morally live up to God's standard. It's simply saying, I'm going to be holy as you are holy by putting all of my faith, all of my identity, all of my worth in Jesus Christ who died for me, who was slain for me. That's what it means to be dead to sin. It doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. It means that all of that God looks at and says, you're not guilty. It's been paid for. Jesus paid it all on the cross for you and for me. And that should give you courage. So, Baylor, as we step out into this season, in this new era together, on the cusp of 60 years, there are miraculous things that God wants us to see as a community, as, as a group. But we'll only experience that if the people that we are in private are people that hit our knees in worship and say, Jesus, command me. And some of you, you might be trying to get out of this. You might say, okay, well, Joshua was the, the leader of Israel, and Drew, you're kind of the leader of this church. Really, this is just for you, Drew. So pay attention, Drew. I'll pray for you. You better, you know, okay, say, you know, yes, that's absolutely true. And hold me accountable to that. If you see me in any way not living to the life that Jesus has invited me to live, you call me on it. You, call, you absolutely call me on it. I want to be a leader that is on my knees saying, Jesus, command me, command us. But at the same time, the collective whole of us as individuals also need to be like Joshua's. Because of what Christ has done, we're all part of the leadership of this church. We all get to invest in what God is doing. We're all part of that royal priesthood. We're all living stones. All the things that make it true. We're all members of this body, spiritually speaking. And so in as much as you can hit your knees... Not physically, but hit the knees with your heart to the ground and say, Jesus, command me. Then you'll experience absolute breakthroughs in your life. You'll begin to see the promises that he has for you. Let's pray. Jesus, the fullness of who you are is so much beyond our comprehension. And yet, Scripture tells us that the fullness of God dwells in you. That you are the image of the invisible God. That if we want to get to know God, we just got to take a long, loving look at you. And Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would enable our hearts to see you, Jesus. The judge who steps down and gives his life for us. May that melt our heart. May we see you as the one filled with integrity and faithfulness and love and holiness. And Jesus, I pray that you would help every single one of us put ourselves in one of two categories. We're either for you or against you. We're either for you because we say, command me, or we're against you because we tell you, are you for me or against me? And God, I pray that your loving kindness would lead us to repentance, that we would turn, that we would cause our hearts to turn to you and with empty hands of faith, say, Jesus, command me. 
And so, God, as we sit in this silence, I pray that your spirit would do a work in our hearts. That it wouldn't be the words that we've sung or the word preached, but it would be your Holy Spirit moving in hearts, bringing them to you to lead all of us to a place where we can say, Jesus, command me. God, we thank you for this silent moment as we spend our time with you, our Creator. And God, we thank you that we put our faith and trust in you, Jesus, that we're never put to shame, that in that moment God's Spirit dwells in us, that we're cast out of darkness into your marvelous light, that we become part of your royal priesthood, a treasure possession, that we're part of your people, that you tell us that we have a, a plan for our lives, a purpose for our lives, that we have a hopeful future. And you tell us that even when just one person turns to you, that there's rejoicing in heaven among the angels. May we celebrate that truth. And may we simply respond and worship. Jesus, we thank you for your love. And it's in your mighty and matchless name we pray. And we say together, amen.